the sandbox is evolving into something quite unique in both what you can play and also how you can create on it. Global video game market revenue soared to $400 billion in 2022, and the sandbox sits firmly on this wave. The Sandbox is a premier decentralized gaming platform where creators can build and host events in a virtual world. Think Roblox, but on the Ethereum blockchain protocol. The Sandbox differs from Roblox, however, in that Sandbox players maintain ownership of their digital assets such as virtual land and identity. And we want to make Sandbox as accessible as possible to creators who don't need to learn a programming language, can just drag and drop and create within minutes experience. Today, the SAND token, which is traded on several cryptocurrency exchanges, holds a market cap of more than $800 million. The Sandbox's ecosystem is equally impressive with over 400 brands including Gucci, Adidas, HSBC, Warner Music, Snoop Dogg, and Playboy. That's what Sandbox now, even with blockchain and NFT, still is about. It's still about making people feel great, about creating, having fun creating with this new no-code software. On this episode of Some Future Day, the Sandbox's founder, Sebastian Bourget, joins me and discusses his entrepreneurial journey. Sebastian provides insight about his platform's impressive growth in a highly turbulent sector, AI's impact on the creator economy, how Apple's foray into spatial computing will unlock new revenue opportunities for entrepreneurs, and why international markets like China, South Korea, and Japan are leading the way in Web3. It's been a fantastic journey since we've been acquired in 2018 by Animoca Brands, and we started to build a blockchain-based version of Sandbox at its own spun-out entity. Sebastian and I recently met on a panel discussion in New York City, where he shared why digital fashion is important to the next generation. I am honored that Sebastian joined me for a compelling discussion about one of my favorite topics, gaming on some future day. Thank you, Sebastian. Hi, Sebastian. Thank you so much for joining some future day today. It's great to see you again. I know that we were together in New York City months ago. So welcome and thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. It's pretty impressive what you've done with the Sandbox. Uh, I was just looking at some statistics that you've shared. The Sandbox now, the ecosystem in particular, includes over 400 brands. In fact, brands as compelling as Gucci, Adidas, HSBC, Warner Music Group, Playboy, and one of my favorites, Snoop Dogg. You have over 700 partners and 200 verified agencies. The market cap for the Sandbox is now north of 600 million. And I know that you were purchased by Animoca. So it's an amazing, amazing journey. And it's an amazing, amazing accomplishment. So congratulations with all of that. It's, it's super impressive. Thank you, Mark. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and get a chance to talk a little bit about uh, Sandbox. Uh, it's been a fantastic journey since we've been acquired in, in 2018 by Animoca Brands. And 
we started to build a blockchain-based version of Sandbox as its own spun-out entity, raising funds, like bringing more partners from entertainment sector, some of them you mentioned, but also going beyond. We saw like all the sectors in the industry already embracing the possibilities that Sandbox as a user-generated platform has to offer. I feel it's still early on as well, like uh, we are building the tools, we're providing lands, avatars, and uh, uh, combining an ecosystem, content, and product. And we are glad to see that progressively we're able to attract a very diverse and diversified type of content and experiences that you don't find on other platforms. And Sandbox is evolving into something quite unique in both like what you can play and also how you can create on it. You know, you you speak like a true founder, a very motivated person. I see you're just constantly working and traveling and promoting. So I thought it would be interesting today to share with our audience some insight as it relates to, and advice, honestly, as it relates to being a founder. So the first concept that I wanted to touch on from that perspective is innovation and ideation. Can you share an instance where an original idea or a creative approach to problem solving propelled the sandbox forward? If you look back, like what Sandbox is, Sandbox started in 2011 as a mobile game with this very simple idea, like how do we enable anyone to create games? And leveraging the possibilities that technology available at that moment has to provide for that. So when we saw smartphones and we we saw that smartphone already enabled anyone to make video games, not just like big AAA game companies of hundreds of people with $100 million budget, but now anyone, again, like the, the, the founder's myth of like a startup in a garage is possible with one or two people. We jumped on it and we thought, okay, but what's so special about that platform? What makes it so unique? And we found that it was actually the touchscreen. The idea is that you can play and it feels almost like magic when you interact with your finger on the screen and that it swipes so well. And you think like, what wouldn't be amazing that when you swipe on the screen, it feels like you're dropping like pixel of materials. materials. And that's the core idea Like we gave birth to Sandbox. The original Sandbox version was a very 8-bit style, like Commodore 64 flash game on Congregate. And we took that and we decided, let's make it feel like things drop from your finger on the screen falling like snow, etc. And that was an amazing feeling that started to, to grow uh, like the interest and attract more and more people to become creators. And the user feedback was fantastic. People really felt empowered. I guess like over the years, like it's also the accumulation of experiences that we had. Sometimes we make decisions that were not the right one, but we iterated very fast on moving toward a different decision, a different approach, and that paid off over years. So there's always this combination of like fast innovation, but also persistence over a decade on like what you feel is your company mission and you keep evolving around that. And that's what Sandbox now, even with blockchain and NFT, still is about. It's still about like making people feel great about creating, having fun creating with this new uh, no-code software. Taking that concept of innovation a little bit further, again, with wearing your, your founder cap, how do you foster a culture within your team of innovation? Like, how do you keep people excited to create and um, design and innovate? I feel there's multiple levels. First, because we are user-generated content platform, like it's inherent that we are going to see 
always new content being made with our product. And what I needed to do uh, as a founder is more to bring to the company culture to care about what the community of users are making, to go check it, to go play it every day, to feature it and to make it the normal for our team to be very closely interactive, interacting with the creators, understanding how they use the product and uh, what they are doing. And it's not necessarily very uh, intuitive. Most people who design games and products, they design it for themselves, not for the consumer. That's the wrong approach. Like You want to design something not for yourself or your dream product. You design it for someone, even if it's an entertainment product. At the end of the day, you're uh, focusing on targeting a niche and you're focusing on like serving it right so they keep engaging. And, and so that's where I felt like it was important. The second is like being involved myself. I, I like somehow to say like lead by example. Like it's hard to tell to other, oh, care about our creator, check what they do if you don't do it yourself, if you don't know your product, if you don't use your own product. So that, that's what I do. I use it massively. I go play the experience uh, when they are, they go live. I go check all the new content. I interact a lot with the creators to hear their feedback. And then I hand them over, of course, to my team so they can be their account managers, their publishing manager, and they will support it through like the whole life cycle of like publishing, marketing, getting creative on like how we're going to communicate, uh, launch, and more uh, the experiences. But I'm trying to inspire and be also very down to earth and on the ground because I feel like you there's no opportunity to lose contact with your community, lose touch with your community or or, or, or users. It's interesting. I, I, you know, I own obviously a small advertising agency and my business partner and I also like to be very hands-on all the time with every aspect. And I think for us, a lot of that is because we're doing what we love. We're doing, you know, something that really defines who we are, but it's something we're passionate about. So I see that with a lot of founders, even as companies like yours grow. So is that kind of like who define, like who, what defines you, Sebastian? Like you're doing this not to micromanage or like as a helicopter operator, you're doing your hands-on because you love what you do. Well, that's definitely like, I wouldn't be able to like give so much energy, so much passion and inspire the people if I didn't genuinely love like the idea, like empowering others, giving them new opportunities, new jobs and seeing what they make with our product. You know, it, it give a lot of like adrenaline rush and good energy and good vibes to see the feedback. Doesn't need to be always positive feedback. I also take it sometimes like there is a messy situation to solve. They complain. And so I want to show like I'm here to listen and to solve when on, on both sides, like the good and the bad side. Yeah. And uh, but they feel like this product, this platform is being lifted by someone before it's fully handed over afterward, because we also will be decentralized one day. But everything will have to run without me uh, and without our team as well. So that's the, the promise of like being fully decentralized. Yeah. And I feel like uh, it, it is it will come because we're inspiring others. And also something that when we started Sandbox originally, we didn't launch a game maker and saying this is what it can do. We launched a game maker, and six months before, we worked with a hundred of creators to showcase what it can do. So when it launched publicly, there was already enough content to inspire more people. So I think that's something maybe people might be missing. It's not just a product alone, it's product and content all packaged together that makes like really the whole experience interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. I think, you know, 
you mentioned like the good and the bad, how you're like deep into the process and looking at both sides and founders are always challenged um, and, and have a certain level of resilience, I think that is almost like abnormal, right? Like it's easy for people to see you personally on big stages, giving compelling speeches, having all of the success, rubbing shoulders with some of the most influential people in Web3. But, you know, every entrepreneurial journey comes with a certain level of setbacks and challenges. And I'm curious if you could share a particular challenge that maybe seemed insurmountable for you personally. And then basically, how did you manage to overcome it? And what does it take? Like, what is it in your blood that allows you to keep hitting these roadblocks and driving through these difficult time periods? Well, I've been an entrepreneur since uh, 2008 already, together with my business partner, Archer Madrid. We co-founded many companies, but really the one that's really been growing that much and becoming the most impactful has been Sandbox for the past five years. Frankly speaking, like I was never prepared to become like a public speaker and go on big stage. Actually, I'm pretty shy. I don't like, so, so you will never see me like outgoing. Actually, I'm the guy like at the corner that talks to nobody unless people come to speak to him. I feel lucky in the way that people come to talk to me because if not, I, I will not start approaching them, right? And I think it's more like, overcoming certain of your fears and like training it's through practice you that you become better so i'm not born a great speaker i don't, I don't know if i am by the way but well, let's say I, fantastic I'm every time i've seen you speak, been trying fantastic. more and more and thank you and it seems that it drives people it inspire them and they enjoy and they see value and so i say okay now i can do it again, because that I will reach to more people and that will bring them to the platform and that makes an impact for them and they launch great content. And I've been doing that across the world because I've also seen that Sandbox, our model works very well when we are creating a more diverse, uh, inclusive world, bringing many regions of the world rather than trying like many of our competitors to focus on US first, let's be the biggest in US and then care about the rest of the world. And we see Asia as a definitely a, a region in the world that feels very empowered, very talented, very creative on Sandbox. And from Thailand to Singapore to Korea to Japan, like they are really enjoying creating, owning land and uh, playing our experiences. And so it's great to showcase that among as well some of the brands you mentioned before, more Western brands like Snoop Dogg, uh, Gucci, Warner Music, etc. It's interesting that you brought up the topic of Asia. I wanted to touch on that, but like in a broader tech in a, in a broader sense, as it relates to the gaming industry, currently the global video game market revenue in 2022 amounted to $400 billion US dollars and mobile where you started is still leading the way. It's incredible. And the companies, the two biggest companies, as it relates to revenue um, in gaming are based in Asia. Tencent is number one. And as you're probably aware, that's a Chinese-based entity. And then Sony is number two based out of Japan. And I, from what I'm reading and from what you're sharing right now, it looks like Sandbox is growing in markets like Hong Kong, Korea, Japan, but not necessarily so much in North America and the United States. And I'm curious, do you think that the growth that you're seeing in Asia 
the interest in gaming, maybe the interest also in decentralization and Web3 is because there's a different mentality and even maybe a different need in markets like Asia? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I think like there's really different approach to culture, like generally speaking as well, like the gaming culture, the access to internet, the access to mobile, the acceptance of like virtual world and how it can be used both for like business, marketing, education, work, and of course gaming. And I've seen that for for already quite some time, like before the previous game studio, before the, the story of like our, our first contact with Animoca brands, before we've been acquired by them in 2018, was we wanted to publish Sandbox, which was a popular game in US, to bring it to Japanese user, to Korean user and Chinese user. And they were like specialized into publishing game in Asia. So back in 2014, I already felt like mm, the market is definitely going to grow there they will jump straight to the next technology. They will adopt like faster internet while Europe was on the edge and 3G. They were already on 4G, 5G. They will have like ways to make payments much faster by contactless or NFC by then where we or QR code where we were still trusting with physical and wire transfers and checks. So in a way, there's always an opportunity to be adopting the most recent technology combined to like a very good concentration of population that is young, that lives in like metropolis rather than in the suburbs and a culture where like gaming entertainment is very much more accepted socially. Like in Europe, in US, when you say I spend all my weekend playing games, there you kind of like a weirdo geek guy that you don't want to kind of spend too much time with. In Asia, it's kind of normal. Like they spend a lot of time playing together both boys and girls and so on. And we've, there's been many studies around those behaviors. So I think it's, it's being reflected in the adoption of metaverse by all ages and by all kinds of businesses and their ability to also like do business faster, to onboard and test things faster. And now uh, touching as well on how it translates more recently in the adoption of Web3 and metaverse, those countries like Hong Kong have put in place regulation that like really encourage adoption of Web3. So it's be also being driven by the public sector that sends a clear signal toward like the private sector of like, go ahead, be entrepreneur, innovate, and we will drive and, and support you with funding, with a various incubation program and, and other mechanics. Whereas US has been very laconic, sending very... Uh, mixed signals and more of like a fear, general fear atmospheres that honestly didn't really support their the entrepreneurship and innovation beyond and uh, behind. And it is definitely be affecting the development of web free and metaverse in that particular region of the world. Have you seen firsthand that the United States government's inability to regulate their, their inability to understand blockchain technology and cryptocurrency has had an adverse impact perhaps on innovation in the sector, maybe job growth in the United States. Um, have you seen investment dollars in VC and PE move away from the United States into places like Asia? It's a very common story you hear from entrepreneurs, even American entrepreneurs will go to incorporate, for example, in the UAE, in Dubai, where there is like clear framework with VARA, uh, or they will do though in Asia, where as well, again, there is a clear framework. 
And so this is, they are losing their talents, their brains. And then because the world is even more global and connected than it used to be, like there is no more dream of the Silicon Valley. Like in Web3, the, the dream of Silicon Valley is totally gone. Like it's back maybe with AI. It was very strong with mobile and mobile gaming. But Web3, I cannot say there is a concentration of like founders and funding and talents in Silicon Valley, which has been for a long time the main driver of innovation in the U.S. So where do you see, um, if you were going to rank where the talent is, if it's no longer in Silicon Valley, where would you say the top two regions are on the planet today as it relates to gaming? So I, I don't, excuse me, I don't have like the exact numbers, so it's more like a general impression, but I feel like France is doing, is ranking quite well in terms of attractivity of web free founder and startups. You can think of Sorer, of Ledger, and a few other companies. Hong Kong is rising. Uh, Korea has been always uh, at the edge of it, and there's a great number of gaming companies we were mentioning before, from uh, Nexon, NCSoft, Come To Us, WeMate, uh, Dead Marble, who are also already adopting blockchain technology on their uh, games and uh, launching new products. Japan has been very uh, vocal in the past months toward like uh, creating a, an environment that will accept and welcome entrepreneurs. I feel those countries are ranking top, but, uh, and then U.S., uh, well, let's let's look a little bit more if where U.S. stands on that. Do you think the United States will be able to catch up ever again? Like it seemed like they were really in a lead position there for a while. Do you think they could catch up if they get control over you know the regulations, the SEC, and all? Or do you think it's just it's it's a losing proposition at this point? No, I, I think it's like it's way too early to say anything is lost. Like there's still like the highest concentration of the best university, of best talent, a lot of uh, funding available in the U.S. So if like somehow trigger again that environment and create a new, new Silicon Valley uh, region, I don't know if it will be still around the California or it will be anywhere else in the U.S. But there is still a lot of potential out there. So I hope like months and years ahead will tell us that U.S. can catch back on that front. Well, it's interesting, um, you know, notwithstanding the fact that we're like in this crypto winter, cryptocurrency still has a market cap of over a trillion dollars in value. And what I've watched historically is that gaming is really a wonderful gateway into new and different types of innovation. And your world is really interesting because you're gaming first, you have this decentralized layer on blockchain, which, you know, obviously extends into cryptocurrency or, and or tokens um, to, to, you know, a certain extent. And we don't need to get into that right now. I'm just curious from your perspective, like how important is a superior quality gaming experience? And do you think that gaming is the sector that will allow for mass adoption of all of the benefits of a decentralized Web3 landscape? So yes, uh, maybe something I didn't mention, by the way, I'm also the president of the Blockchain Game Alliance, which is an organization that now groups over 600 members and with a goal of educating about the possibilities that blockchain technology brings to what like the gaming industry. I believe that Gaming is going to be still a strong use case that drive technology adoption. Like uh, we know that gaming is bigger as an industry than music and movies combined now in entertainment and it's still poised to grow. Uh, we see that people are looking for still like great content and experiences. So there's no um, 
decrease of speed in the, like, the adoption of like the number of people who are engaging and spending time in games. But there is a certain saturation in like what kind of diverse experience uh, made because of like the web two and the free to play model where games are more and more copycats or clones or little evolution of others. I think like what's in, you said something quite important, like trying to define like what's a superior gaming experience. And it's not necessarily what people think it is. It's not about like the graphics alone. It's about like the fun. You can actually reach a lot of fun without like great graphics. Think about like Nintendo strategy. Why is still Nintendo very relevant with a 3DS before, with a Switch? It was never the best graphic console, but it was the most fun, multiplayer, casual, and always broadened the market of like bringing younger audience, bringing older audience, and family gaming in a way. But I feel like blockchain gaming can attract across like different uh, genre of games behind. At the end of the day, uh, a blockchain game will ultimately be just a game that use NFTs, might be using a cryptocurrency or not. We're seeing that a bit less now to enable users to own their assets trade them where they want on marketplaces, monetize their time, but still experience uh, like fun gameplays, engaging gameplays. And uh, it will be hard to differentiate a traditional, like an old game that doesn't use blockchain versus a new game that uses it very soon. Like the fact that there are developer solutions that makes it very seamless, etc. Like all of that has evolved greatly. And uh, we're really close to getting to that point. So I'm curious, like you're so, you know, you've been your entire career, like deep into the gaming space. Are you a gamer? Uh, well, I think like, again, like who's not a gamer? Like three billion True. people play games. But if I play Candy Crush on my phone, I am a gamer or not? My answer is yes, you are. I actually. agree. The gamer is not this stereotypical guy that only play like Call of Duty or Battle Royale on uh, a, a PUBG or, or like a Fortnite on a console device with a very high graphic. No, that, that's that's go- gone. Like if you think of that, you're already thinking uh, uh, 10 years later, t- too late. Like, so anyone enjoy like casual gaming, small moment of fun and, and takes very various forms. Myself, yes, I started playing games since like Super Mario, on Super... Super Nintendo, Super NES, Super Famicom, uh, depending yeah. on where you lived. And uh, I'm so yeah, I, used to I was own playing every console Pong. generation. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, <laughs> but, but somehow I, I like uh, working in the game industry changed a bit my perspective. Like, not only uh, I play game, but I kind of deconstruct the game. So now, like, it's becoming a tool, part of my job to understand what makes that game fun. So trying to reverse back, like, okay, this is everything they've done, the control the visual effect, the camera, uh, the fight, the speed, the music, and how do we take the best of that to apply it to our own game? So this is what I enjoy now, like really finding like what makes games great, again, not only on the graphic, but all many other things, and apply it to Sandbox in the future. Sebastian, I think that's a really cool angle to take, and maybe it's not such a common thing for people in your position to say. Like The reality is that fun first creates an emotional connection between the individual and the game and then the broader community. Um, you don't hear that often, but if you do go back to like where I started in the gaming space, when I was a kid, I would sit in my basement and play Pong, which I'm sure you would agree design-wise was like non-existent, right? But I would play for hours and hours and hours and then 
as more innovation and great design came out, I kept going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. But my generation, the 80s, we were deep into Space Invaders and all of these other games where it was a very crude format. There was no 3D immersive experience. There was no mixed reality experience. It was just fun, right? So from your perspective- But, but there like, was probably already a social component of it. Like maybe totally. some friends were watching you play, you were playing together. Yes. When you go back to school, you still talk about what you played and your scores. So it, it creates something, some memories and- yeah, that's totally. the bound uh, binding that you refer to. Where where did where would you go now? Like just on a personal level, forget about business. Like, what are your favorite games to play personally? All right, so I still enjoy playing um, basic games like <laughs> like match free games, city builders, trying to expand them. Uh, I've been a fan of like SimCity, Age of Empires, Counter Strike for years, like all my teenage days, nights. Weekends, Amazing. Uh, holidays, probably <laughs> I spent on that. Great. So I, I love back then, like multiplayer gaming already quite early on. So the fun thing is pretty cool, and you and you talk about um, community building and user generated content. I often talk about the age of imagination, like this time period where individual creators will be able to disrupt, create new revenue streams for themselves, create entire businesses from, for themselves. So I'm curious, how do you see for creators like a new financial opportunity as um, the concept of creating in gaming in particular is becoming increasingly easier for an individual versus you know, having a multi-billion dollar entity? What's the opportunity for individual creators these days? I think the, the opportunity has never been uh, as wide uh, as right now. And it will keep increasing, like attracting people who are not in the video game uh, industry before, who didn't start like for a gaming job career and like to learn at a specialized school or universities or academies. There are so many tools that allows you to start creating your own game with or without programming. And that's also one of the success of a platform like Minecraft and Roblox. Like People, uh, and to a broader extent, Legos, like people like to build things. It's fun to create, actually. And, and that's a thing like the game is creating by itself when you think about it. And showing to others what you create, seeing others enjoy into it, connect with others and create together. That's a kind of like socially binding moment. And we want to make Sandbox as accessible as possible to creators who don't need to learn a programming language. language can just drag and drop and create within minutes experiences. It's been very empowering for people to realize that they had all that potential in them. And the form of them founding new careers, starting new jobs, and then overall, like if they pursue that, like even launch their own business, hire people and become successful at it. I think that's the kind of impact that you can make. And when you bring different kinds of creators, you are going to start with a different kind of content and experience on the platform. So it is very beneficial as well uh, to have a platform that's get more and more diverse and diversified because you have a different breed of creators behind. That's what Roblox really brought to the market for many years. People did never consider that the content on Roblox was game until they realized, oh, wow, like there's a lot of players and there is a revenue to be made. But still at that point of time, Roblox keeps and gives back only 30%, sometimes less with exchange rate to the creators. So they're still like, they build 
and the, the revenue model for themselves. And, and as a platform, they take most of the value that is being contributed by the creators themselves. So we felt like this was also unfair. And that's why, like with NFTs and blockchain, you can make sure that like the value is being held in the hands of the stakeholders and creators who contribute the most toward like creating that value on the platform. So have you seen any, you know, noteworthy examples of what you're talking about on Sandbox where maybe somebody like me who doesn't have a programming background came in, developed a world, developed a game and monetized it? Are there a few um, that you could mention and highlight? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. Like we have this uh, voice from the metaverse uh, channel on the Sandbox, uh, on YouTube of Sandbox and we interview a lot of creators. You can hear their story and how, like, indeed, they found. I'm thinking of um, small studios, like uh, in Korea, there's uh, a studio called Fag Bros, led by Shanti. He originally, like, got interested in Sandbox, bought a, a pretty large land, then left his job at Samsung, which actually made big news because, like, leaving a, a, a group like Samsung to go start your own great studio in the metaverse was kind of like uh, extraordinary by, by their means. And now he runs a team of um, over 15 people there creating very fun casual games after Ocean uh, Rush, after um, that I played on stream. Um, you said you had a background into like an advertising agency. Uh, Loretta Chen from Smobler in Singapore kind of similarly had this background and she's definitely not a tech person. And yet now she runs one of the most prolific uh, metaverse studio based in Singapore, she brought the kingdom of Bhutan in Sandbox to create the Bhutanverse, and she's been leveraging it to like empower, educate, and support certain uh, positive impact goals. Uh, we've seen younger creators who like start to stream as well, and now like are becoming more and more influential uh, among the community and can live from like full time streaming activity too. That's really how the creator economy works, basically. Like it starts small, but progressively, like the audience enlarge and being a first mover has an advantage, definitely. It's not like a gated platform where if you're not a first mover, you have no opportunity, but there is an opportunity in being first mover still. So what kind of like financial success have these people garnered on on your platform um, as creators? So this Something like, like I, I like to think a lot is like, what, what is financial success? Like, is it uh, earning a million, hundred of million of dollars? Or is it already like being able to pay yourself a salary out of the thing that you do uh, and you're most passionate about? So like you have like that freedom of like doing what you want instead of being into a system where like you have no choice and you only do it because you have to survive, pay your bills and so on. And I look at the middle, what we call the middle class, like not only the top uh, winning studio or the one percentile, but like making sure like the revenue distribution among the creators is good. And uh, that's something that we found in Sandbox. Many creators are able to make a living and just create, sell their NFTs, launch experiences and be able to have a very decent higher salary than what they were earning before in a previous job. That's to me, what should be like financial success about. Yeah, I, I agree with you um, wholeheartedly. I think passion and productivity really do define human success. I, 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 I'm a big um, advocate or proponent of Ayn Rand, and I think that's what makes people happy, um, being productive individuals and doing what they love. But 
you know, I can't help but be curious when you talk about an individual who would leave Samsung to start a studio on your platform. Um, is that studio generating tens of millions of dollars now in, in the metaverse? Give me a few more uh, years and I will hopefully we'll be able to share these kind of stories. Like very, uh, again, down to earth, like Sandbox, where we just recently opened a possibility for creators to publish uh, their content opening it to their audiences. We are progressively opening the marketplace to everyone for creators. So revenue comes in, but revenue has not been the first driver for like, we've been empowering creators to be able to launch content, engage audience, retain them. And like monetization is a big topic for next year. Still, people who got involved in sandbox ecosystems, sometimes I heard stories like, I was able to buy my house. I was able to buy my car thanks to sandbox and so on. And like, that's always great. Like this it's is amazing. one of most people's life goals. And I want them to make not just one-time story, but hopefully like more of like a maybe hundred and thousand of people's stories. So if these individual creators are, you know, building on the sandbox and, you know, are, are reaching, you've heard success stories now where they're buying their dream homes or buying a new car. That's like quite the accomplishment for you personally as a founder, because you're creating wealth across society and across the globe. What impact do you think artificial intelligence will have as it relates to accelerating these creative visions for the creator on Sandbox? I, th I think like uh, AI is definitely a very interesting technology that will drive like even more, like we were just talking before, like how do we attract more creators? And the first step is like making no-code tools, just drag and drop. But when you think about AI and generative AI, like if you can just type a text and it creates, brings ideas to life, create characters, create environment, create gameplay, this is amazing. Like then it brings like, it enables basically almost 7 billion people who just know how to type or write to become creators. So that's the potential that AI has and it's coming. Like right now, AI is very strong at 2D images, uh, text, music. 3D is still in progress, but it, it every six months, like it, it gets twice better at what it was. So I'm, I have no doubt that 3D will be mastered very soon. And I feel like, indeed, when you have an idea in mind, instead of spending two days, three days to, to drag and drop and put it together into the concept, in a matter of seconds or minutes, you get a rendering that shows exactly like what you, or, or like a mood board or something. So we were talking like, how do we trigger innovation, brainstorming, etc. AI is a very powerful tool. We are using it both internally and we encourage creators to use it to concept faster, to iterate faster on their ideas. Is there opportunity, Sebastian, for creators, individuals specifically, to take advantage of new innovation that's coming at us? Like, for example, Apple has this whole spatial computing platform that's going to be built out, right, with the new Vision Pro. So how, how could um, an entrepreneurial creator in Sandbox take advantage of innovation like Meta's new Ray-Ban glasses or, or Vision Pro and spatial computing? What should they be thinking about? Well, those opportunities are available not only to create on Sandbox, but, but in general, right? Like we are not integrated with any particular, but... It's really the mindset, like that's the mindset we adopted, being uh, an early adopter, a pioneer, testing the technology, seeing what's available, even if it's early or clunky sometimes, but seeing, oh, that could improve toward that and that. And that's 
That's what led us to be first on mobile. That led us to be uh, first on, uh, uh, in my previous startup, into peer-to-peer, into cloud streaming for photo, video, and music online. Always like trying out those technology, being passionate about like their future potential, even if it will take five or 10 years to materialize. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Like you might think like, oh, VR really didn't took off as much as we expected, but still it made a few studio and creator very notable. Uh, AR games has triggered Niantic, uh, mobile ring like uh, Rovio. And I don't know if many people know that Rovio, before they came to Angry Birds, they failed 51 games before. And then there was a 50-second title that was really the big hit for them. So there is always also resilience yeah. and uh, uh, taking away, like, like you... you Probably not a lot of people in this world can get the right thing at the right time, at the right market, for the right audience on the first try. I, I don't know who does, but like the fact that you iterate and you can get some takeaways and understanding of why it didn't work and have this ability to say, okay, it's time to stop, build something else and iterate. I, I think that's what really uh, makes most of this, the, the characteristic behind many of the most successful entrepreneurs. Why is the real estate component of the sandbox important because we are a virtual world so a virtual world has this map and the map is a very different way to browse and discover content the way we think about it is like instead of having a, a gallery of uh, app icons that tells you which game to play to download and there is really literally no connection between each other a map brings like location geographical proximity between content and connects uh, two neighboring experience by being closely available for an avatar to move in between and also potentially by uh, like participating to build something uh, even bigger. So we think like a map is very inherent to a 3D virtual world. Users who play the MMORPGs are very used to it. Google Map is a great example of like when you browse on Google Map versus when you browse on uh, just Google for results is is quite different, right? So it adds all that context. And somehow a lot of like the the core characteristic of like real estate apply very well in virtual world. Buying a land to develop a business, an activity on top of it that drive traffic. So basically people and the avatar come, makes them potentially spend time or monetize. And if like we're in a multiple creators in a neighborhood that indeed drive traffic, it flows. That traffic flows and we benefit. So we create a neighborhood that's more valuable for everyone. And surprisingly, people want to play, be, and build in places where like there's more traction and more attractivity for them. So attracts even more business and entrepreneur. And I guess like that's why it's so important for us to curate neighborhoods, not just say, hey, here's land, it's empty. Go for it. No, the way people and uh, real estate promoters, they create projects, they create a uh, place you want to live, place you want to work, place you want to like have access to many services, uh, and they use great uh, architect designers so you can project yourself into, I want to buy that apartment, that house, I want to be part of a community. And all of that, that applies very well in the physical world, is also... Uh, makes sense in virtual world yeah. where we're going to spend more of our time as well. What about the, the, the bad, the, the negative parts of real estate and community from the net, from the physical world? Do they carry over into the virtual world too? Like for example, do you have anybody complain about 
my neighbor is doing something terrible or, you know, I don't like my neighbor, anything like that come up in the virtual world, just generally speaking? Yes, uh, I, I guess it will, this case, kind of case will happen. I, I heard some story on the platform like CryptoVoxel, someone bought a billboard and put it right at the edge of another land and, well, basically made like, uh, pay me X amount so I can remove my billboards, my, my, these billboards, so you, you get oh, wow. your view. So, well, these are like What's interesting happening? approach. <laughs> Yeah, that, it does. It does, and there is always this weird opportunities that's being created based on the rules of the platform. In sandbox, you don't see what's in your neighbor when you are into a land, so that doesn't affect you so much. But the kind of content might be uh, not the one you want. So then, in this case, you have uh, options to move. You have options to to maybe block access to this neighbor, so you don't get that traffic. Yeah. We can think of uh, different rule sets. Uh, but investment too, right? Is is it? Um, would you say this is like uh, Madison Avenue 150 years ago, and people that come in and invest in in the real estate now could could potentially see a great upside financially? Yeah, we, we, the Big Apple size is roughly the size of Sandbox as well, and the value of land in 1900 uh, was uh, one dollar a parcel in the US, and now it's probably much more in Sandbox. It, it could follow that same uh, pattern of price if there is activity, there is traffic, there is business on it. But also, similarly, what we do, and sometimes I say we are like virtual, we, we are urban planners. So basically, we also have the ability to buy back lands, to redevelop, to build concepts. We kept portion of lands all across the map to feature content from great creators who don't necessarily have to buy to get their content published. So we are active as well, promoter of making sure like the whole different neighborhoods remains valuable and always have something interesting to play, to discover, to bring traffic for, for everyone in the community to benefit from. That's great. So I, I'm, I'm sensitive to the fact that you have limited time. I just, um, something that we do on some future day is each guest takes the words some future day and predicts into the future. Like I'll lead you. And then I'd like you to finish the sentence, if that's okay. So, for example, in some future day, gaming will become... All right. So in some future day, everyone will become a creator in games. Or, or another way to put it, like there will be no games where players cannot create their own content. Great. And then the, the next one, because I really think what you're doing with Sandbox is just so interesting on so many levels. Like the psychology of it, the financial piece of it. Uh, there are just so many moving parts. Like you just said, you're an urban planner. Like there's so much to it. So it's, it's more than a game. Um, so in some future day, the sandbox will become... Ah, well, in some future day, the sandbox will become the place you hang out with your friends, you'll date maybe other people, you'll work, you'll learn... And you'll interact and make it your full-time job to create or to engage or to discover content and experiences. I love that. Sebastian, unless there's any other topic that you want to cover, I really am very impressed with your vision and your resilience as a founder. I think a lot of our audience will really appreciate that. So thank you so much for today. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. There was even more, one more, in one future day, I believe, like people... Uh, will 
will not believe it when we'll tell them like your digital asset actually wasn't really yours and you couldn't do anything else outside of the game where it was originally acquired or bought or created. Well, that's another topic I wanted to get into you with you, like the interoperability of an avatar, the value mm-hmm. that's been built into it, and then how with cryptocurrency and, and Web3, that avatar will become you know, your, your legal ID, it will have proof of solvency, like all of those cool. components I wanted to like really go deep with you on. I know your time is very important, so thank you so much for joining me today. For ongoing insights surrounding these important topics, you can join the conversation on my social media channels, including Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Mark Beckman. And to sign up for my newsletter on Substack, you can find me at markbeckman.substack.com. To make sure you don't miss a show, be sure to subscribe to Some Future Day across all major platforms worldwide, including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Special thanks to New York University for producing Some Future Day, and a big shout out to my producer extraordinaire, John Boomhofer, for being patient and always encouraging me to push through. Thanks a lot, John. Have a great day.